So let me ask you to open in your copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew and the 15th chapter. We'll be reading the 21st verse through the 28th, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Let's give our attention to God's word. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's take a moment and pray together. Our Lord and God, how thankful we are that you have given us this Sabbath day a day where you've given us the freedom to set aside the work that you've commanded us to do on the other six days of the week. And so we have freedom to come and to set our minds, set our hearts on meeting with you, which is one of those great purposes that you have for the day. Lord, we are aware that as we gather as living stones, you take up residence by your Spirit in our midst, and you build us together. So we ask for you to do that this morning. Come, by your Spirit, blow in our midst. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are eager to receive, minds that are perceptive and willing. So come and show us Jesus this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure many of you were at Laurelville this summer, and the topic was gentle and lowly, taken from Matthew 11, verse 29. We we read those very well-known words, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It was interesting, uh, at least in the life of the North Hills congregation, I had very recently preached on that very text 
before Laurelville. And I'm sure many of you have read the book by Dane Ortland, uh, Gentle and Lowly. It's a, a wonderful book. So what's your reaction to the text we just read? Gentle and lowly. And then consider how Jesus appears. Now this is probably a visual. I want you to catch the air quotes. Jesus appears to treat her very poorly. I mean, think about it. In the the verses that we've just read... Jesus basically ignores this woman. And then he tells her that he's out, she's outside the scope of his mission and his ministry. And then he refers to her as a dog. We might reasonably be bothered. It's texts like these that should rather than shaking our faith, cause us to dig deeper, to go beyond the appearances. And in fact, to to do what I'm sure you've been taught and you would say you would believe, which is to set the uh, the troubling texts in the context of all of Scripture. I'm sure you have all been taught about God for, for many years, some of you probably decades. The vast majority, I, I trust all of you, have placed your faith in the work of Christ on your behalf. You've accepted the gift of salvation. You're, you've recognized that your sin has been imputed to Christ. He's died on the cross to pay the debt you owed He was raised on the third day to demonstrate that, in fact, he was blameless. He's given you, in fact, he's clothed you with his righteousness so that you can stand before God. And and so, as a believer, you've rejoiced in that. And then, to quote that famous commercial, life happens fast. You suffer loss. I'm thinking about North Hills, and I won't detail things, but I'm sure you're the same. There are agonizing things going on in our congregation. Great suffering. Painful. Painful circumstances of life. And as time goes on, perhaps you begin to wonder... Does Jesus really care? Is Jesus really in control? Can I trust his plan? And you find that you are confused, hurting, perhaps close to despair. Let this morning's text encourage you. Life in a sinful, broken world often is agonizing. And in the face of God's testing, your faith needs to cling to the power, love, and inclusion expressed in God's covenant promises. So we need to set tonight's text, or 
I'm so used to preaching in the evening at North Hills, forgive me, that's going to come tripping off my, my tongue frequently this morning. I do know it is morning. <laughs> the text this morning, we need to set it into its immediate context, which is the book of Matthew. If you want to, flip back with me to these passages. We're going to move relatively quickly. I'm going back to chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Jesus has been in Nazareth, and the people of Nazareth who grew up with Jesus didn't recognize him for who he was. His own town, the people that he knew, didn't understand Moving ahead into chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, we have that passage on Herod. And Herod thought that John the Baptist was raised from the dead when he heard about Jesus. Herod didn't understand. And then in the next portion of chapter 14, the disciples don't fully understand who he is. He's fed the crowd. The crowd wants to make him an earthly king. They don't understand. Jesus comes to his disciples later in the next portion of the text, and he's walking on the water, and they cry out, it's a ghost. The disciples are not understanding. And then we get to chapter 15. We have the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're on the attack, and Jesus sets them in their place. But it's clear the scribes and the Pharisees do not understand. Yes, there's a A pattern here, right? They do not understand. And then we come to our text tonight, and we find a woman who does understand. And Jesus, visual, get your eyes up, appears to treat her poorly. That's our context. All these people who don't understand, and a woman who does... As we begin to look at the text, I want to say to you, life in a sinful, broken world is often agonizing. But we're going to start in a slightly different place in terms of looking at agony. And that is, I'm going to ask you to consider the agony of Jesus. Look at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus went away from there. There is a reference to Capernaum. And here's what's staggering. He's left Israel. And why is that? Well, some of the context we just read. The antagonism of the leadership of Israel. And their text says, He withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is definitely Gentile territory. Okay, another visual. See if I can do this reverse in my mind. We have Israel. This is my hand. Okay. We have the Mediterranean Sea over here, right? Tyre and Sidon. He's outside of Israel. And this is what uh, biblical scholars call his retirement ministry. Not retirement. He's 67 and he's tired and he's going to you know, slow down a little bit. He's retiring from Israel. He's getting out of where life is a little bit dangerous. Now, 
let's reach broader again. We're setting context, but we're thinking about the agony of Jesus. Prior to this in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has given us hints that the Gospel was also for the Gentiles. Jesus' birth. Three wise men come. They're Gentiles. They've seen his star, and they come. And then in chapter 4, we have Gentiles coming to him to be healed. We have the centurion in chapter 8. All of those cases, the Gentiles are coming to Jesus. But here, Jesus is going into Gentile territory. And there's a sense where this is agonizing, because chapter 9, he was ministering to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He had compassion on those people. They were harassed and helpless. And in chapter 10, he sent out his disciples with the instructions to go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans. In other words, he was ministering to Israel. And now he has to leave because of the national leadership. He was forced away from those he was sent to, those that he had compassion on. Now consider the agony of the woman. Verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I should have checked this ahead of time. I'm not sure what your translation is in the pew. I'm reading out of the ESV. She's identified as a Canaanite. Okay the self-evident. She's not a Jew. And she's crying. The Greek verb is imperfect. It, it, it implies a repeated action. So William Hendricks says, translates this, she was constantly crying. And the plea is for mercy. We should note there is emotion, desperation, implied. There is a great need, and she's pleading for mercy, undeserved favor. So again, consider her agony. Her daughter, the text says, is severely oppressed by a demon, not passing, not lightly, severely, badly. Now, actually, I'm going to respectfully correct the ESV. The Greek lexicons would say severely possessed. I don't know why they went with oppressed. Now, possession itself is bad enough, but this manifestation is apparently acute. The text says she was severely possessed. Now, as you read the text, do you tend to read and focus on the suffering of the daughter? Yeah, you should. That's very reasonable. Perhaps you consider the agony of the mother seeing her daughter suffer in this way. You should. But let me add one more layer. Have you considered the agony of the mother, what the mother has suffered herself at the hands of her severely possessed daughter? Let's take a brief 
excursus, chase a rabbit. I'm prone to do that. I'm sure you all know the story in 1 Samuel 19. A harmful spirit from the Lord has come on Saul. And with all due reverence to the text, let me put it this way. David had a few spears that he had to dodge. And then Jonathan was accused of treachery, treason by his own father. What's going on in this woman's life? Perhaps, if, if, if you're reading the text closely, you'll, you'll notice there's a shift between verse 22, have mercy on me, my daughter, the focus is on the daughter, her concern for the daughter. And then look at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Me. Maybe when we see that she's perhaps suffering at the hands of her daughter, we see why there's a little bit of a shift in the text. So let me suggest to you I have no idea who is present that is undergoing difficulties. I'm relatively certain it's all of you, but extreme difficulties or whatever. When you see a suffering individual, you must consider that the circle of suffering is much larger than the individual. Those who care for the individual are also suffering. Back to our text. She's come. Have mercy on me. And remember, remember, constantly crying. This is, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, mercy, please. By the way, have mercy on me. And it's radio silence. Jesus doesn't answer her. Ouch. This is apparent, visual, apparent indifference. There is a purpose. We'll get to that. She doesn't see it yet, right? She's experiencing rejection, or what appears to be. And then those who are with Jesus also fail to show compassion. Look at verse 23. Send her away. Get rid of this annoying woman. And again, they, they note it's, it's imperfect in the ver- verb tense. She's crying out. She's constantly crying out. She's a pain in the neck, Jesus. Get rid of her. She's disturbing our peace, our convenience. This is intolerable. Perhaps it's a reflection of their inability to deal with her. Perhaps it's a reflection of their failure to look to Christ for his help, his advice, his wisdom, his solution. Perhaps it's like chapter 14 in the feeding of the 5,000. I don't know if you remember in that text, before that miracle, the disciples have basically asked Jesus to get rid of the crowd. 
we don't know what to do with this group of people, Jesus. I don't see a solution, Jesus. And Jesus, the easiest way to deal with this is to get rid of the problem. Send them away. Here's where the toe-stepping begins. Is this you? Do you seek to get rid of the problem? The annoying or potentially time-consuming person who needs help? Or do you ask Jesus for wisdom and resources and help? At the time I was preaching this text, I was reading in First Chronicles, and it was striking to me how often the armies of Israel sought God's guidance. God likes that. Do you do that? We need to learn to say, you need to learn to say, God, this is too big for me. I don't have the wisdom. What do you want me to do? What's your solution? Now, just a stray thought here, but I think there's an application for us. Maybe, I don't know this, but we do know that Gentiles have come to Jesus in the past before this text. Perhaps, perhaps this woman has heard Jesus previously, and maybe she heard those words, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And by the way, the verb in that particular passage is also continuous. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Maybe this woman actually gets it. But then Jesus, eyes apparently, rejects her again. Remember, disciples, get rid of her, Jesus. Send her away. And what does he say? Verse 24. He doesn't even talk to her. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That makes her feel great. But Hendrickson suggests that it's equally important for us to notice that Jesus is refusing to respond to his disciples. So they've said, send her away, and he's not giving them an answer to that question or request. And I want to ask a question. Could it be that his failure to answer the woman back in 23 is related to this, that it's, it's mainly for his disciples. I mean, on the surface, the words spoken to the woman seem harsh, but as we continue to read through the text, verses 25 through 28, notice that Jesus continues to work with her. This instruction of the disciples is occurring within his context of his mission to Israel. He ignores their request and he reminds them of his mission. 
by his action, he rejects their request and is instructing them. And he's teaching by contrast, if we can think this way. He's making it plain, or he's about to make it plain, that the great incorporation of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God is something for the future. And what's that doing for the woman? It's setting the stage for the greatness of the gift that she's going to be given in 28. But for now, we're limited by our humanity. We're in space and time, and so is this woman. Just think about how this adds to her agony. I'm desperate, and I'm getting nowhere. Anybody say I resemble that remark? Consider your life. Consider your promises, your, um, your problems. I would not be surprised that many of you feel that your problems are indeed agonizing. I don't know what they are, but I'm willing to say, yeah, they are agonizing. And I wouldn't be surprised to find that some of you feel that perhaps the church Specific brothers or sisters have failed you. They haven't been willing to help. They've been willing to help when it was convenient, but not so much when it was annoying or disturbing to them. Now, I was able to say at North Hills, and I trust I can say it here, that by God's grace, the church has been involved in each other's lives. I trust you are. I trust that there's a great deal of ministry happening in your midst. And, and, and that's a blessing, and you should rejoice in that. It's a gift of God that his mercy and grace has changed you. But with that said, we do foul each other at times, don't we? And sometimes, frankly, if we look at ourselves, sometimes in our despair we lay expectations on our brothers and sisters that they can't meet. And do you feel that Christ has overlooked you, that he's rejecting you and your problem, that somehow his mission is with someone else? Somehow they're more important to him. Do you say with the woman, I'm desperate, I'm getting nowhere? Let's continue. Living in a sinful, broken world in the face of God's testing, your faith must humbly cling to God's power and love expressed in his covenant promises. <clears throat> so, recognizing that God tests you, you must consider the delays and the purposes of delays. And so, yes, I am going to chase a rabbit for a second. I gave you a lot of text to read from Genesis. There's a ton of theology in those texts, I know that. But my point, and I thank Glenn for, for highlighting it, is how long did Abraham have to wait? I suggest to you it was more than a couple of decades. We know the end of the paragraph that we're looking at. The daughter is healed. The woman is commended. 
there's a sense, we know our Reformed theology. We know that Jesus knows all along what he's going to do, what he plans. So why the apparent rebuff? Now, delays are not unique in Scripture. We've already talked about Abraham and Sarah waiting for Isaac. Well, in really excruciating circumstances, Abraham had to wait to discover that Isaac wasn't actually the sacrifice. I mean, he took him all the way to Mount Moriah and bound him. Jesus came to Jairus too late. The daughter had died. Jesus passes by the blind men in Matthew 9, 27 and 28. They have to follow him to the house. During the feeding of the 5,000 that I've already referenced, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but in John chapter 6, we have him saying to Philip, how are we going to feed these people? Right? He's teaching by putting them in these circumstances. Jesus hears that Lazarus has died, and what does he do? Sits around for four days, two more days, and then he goes. All of them have a purpose. Abraham, we are told in Romans 4, waxed strong in faith. Jairus was told, fear not, believe. Philip was being tested. Jesus waited to raise Lazarus so that you might believe. There's always purpose. So if we apply this logic to our text... The woman and the disciples are being shown that, yes, the gospel will start in Israel, but it would go to the Gentiles. And the woman was helped to see. I mean, consider verse 24, only sent to the lost sheep. 26, the crumbs and the bread, right? She's, she's being helped to see just how great a gift she is about to receive. How precious it is when it was denied at first. How amazing it is. The Gentiles are included. So your faith must cling to God's power and love expressed in, his God, in the covenant promises because the gospel's always been to the Gentiles. In Galatians 8, it says that God preached the gospel to Abraham. The scriptures foresaw that the Gentiles would be justified by faith when when God said to Abraham, in you all nations shall be blessed. I'll explain privately how the gospel's there. I don't want to take the time to do that right now. But it's there. So when the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus... I suggest to you she's apprehending that the gospel is for the Gentiles. It's quite a contrast to the scribes and Pharisees back in verses 1 through 20. You know, she's undeterred. Look at verse 24. Jesus has said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then verse 25, she comes and she kneels. Matthew pictures her worshiping Jesus. Proskuneo. To worship. Again, imperfect, repeated action. She prostrates herself again and again. She addresses him as Lord. She's reverential. Back in 22, she addressed, addressed him as, O Lord, Son of David. She's honoring him as the promised Messiah. 
the covenant to Abraham, I'm repeating, says that in him, in Abraham, all nations shall be blessed. So she comes and she keeps on asking and she keeps on asking. She's standing on the covenant. Now, in line with how Jesus is teaching here, there's one last statement that seems to be discouraging and, in fact, insulting. Verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In Jewish culture, to be called a dog was a big insult. So what we have in mind is the fierce, ravaging dogs that were in the garbage that were dangerous and threatening. That's what we find in Matthew 7. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample you underfoot and turn to attack you. But it's a different word here. It's not the same word. It's not the insult. This is the word for dogs that were kept in the home as pets. Yeah, still might be a little bit of an insult. But notice how the woman responds. She demonstrates humility. She doesn't resent. She's not put off by this, being compared to a household pet or previously to a child. She accepts her position. Get your toes out of the way. How's your humility? Are you content with who you are in God's kingdom? Or are you imbibing of American culture? Actually, I think I said it stronger at North Hills. Are you imbibing of the American cultural drivel about your value being related to position, money, or whatever it is? Can you just be content being a doorkeeper in the house of your God? Now, the woman perseveres. She's pretty quick on her feet. What seems to be defeat turns into this. I'm glad to be compared to a household dog. Good masters take care of their pets. They even spoil them with scraps. Her faith is unwavering. (laughs) Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David. He has power. He has compassion. The covenant is for the Gentiles. Here I am. Give me whatever little bit you will. Whatever you give me is going to be great. She, in fact, demonstrates that she is a true Israelite. She's like Jacob, wrestling with God as he comes back into the land I will not let you go until you bless me. She is the one who is beggarly poor and recognizes it and comes to Christ. This is now my danger of preaching an isolated sermon to a congregation that doesn't have the background on this. So I'm off my notes for a second. You need to know what beggarly poor is. It's the beginning of Matthew uh, chapter 5. It's actually verse 3, the Sermon on the Mount. We know it as the Beatitudes. I've come to understand that as the entry to the Beatitudes. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Beatitudes just goes from there and drives you to your knees to show you that you are beggarly poor. You've got nothing. Love to unpack it. Can't do it. But she's beggarly poor. She comes with nothing. Just give me the scraps. Those belong the kingdom of heaven. Let me read. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised? Who will, who will justify the circumcised by faith? and the uncircumcised by faith. That's what we have happening here. So life for many of you is agonizing. Do not be discouraged by God's delays. Rather ask, what is God teaching me? Rather, persevere, hold on, press on. Remember, the Gentiles, and this I think I can say with 100% certainty, that's all of us, all of you, the Gentiles are fully incorporated into the kingdom. We live on the other side of the cross. And if the crumbs that went to this Canaanite woman, if they were wonderful, Consider what he has for you. Most of you know that my daughter died this summer. And I want to leave you with a verse that's meant a lot to me. Consider what he has for you. She got crumbs. You have the fullness of the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, As it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Wonderful crumbs. A great feast in the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the amazing grace and mercy that you have demonstrated in sending Christ to redeem us, to pay the penalty that we deserve, but Lord, it's, it's so much more. You've promised to transform us, to write your law in our hearts and minds. You've promised us a new heaven and a new earth. You've promised us riches that are just surpassing and overflowing. We've seen in our text the crumbs that you gave to this woman. Let them be something that help us understand the greatness of what you have promised for us in the gospel. I pray you would bless each one here. Give hope where hope is needed. Strength where strength is needed.
perseverance where perseverance is needed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.